Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of the Once Bitten podcast. Joining us on today's show is Morgan Rochard, who I had the absolute pleasure of meeting in Biarritz this year at the Surfing Bitcoin Conference. She was there with husband Pierre, and we got to hang out a fair amount and get to know each other, which was a real pleasure, like I said. And we even got to have a steak dinner with Prince Philip and his wife and young son as well. A great event if you want to get over there for next year. I really recommend it. Um, Morgan wrote a book about personal finance. It's a quick start guide. I definitely recommend you go check it out. And she is hosting a podcast as well, Bitcoin for Advisors pod with Pierre. So go and check that out if you haven't listened to it already. I hope you enjoy this episode with Morgan. Make sure you reach out if there's anything that you would like to know further from her and her work. Before we get into the show, please take a second to learn about some of the brilliant companies that can help you out in the Bitcoin space. They can help you stack, first of all, Swan Bitcoin, Coin Corner, and Relay. Swan are based out of the US. That's US only for the DCA. If you use forward slash Bitten, you will get a free $10. You can use them globally for their private service. So reach out to myself or Corey directly, Corey Clipston in DM if you are interested in that private service. Coin Corner, based in the UK, except euros and pounds, you can set up your auto DCA with them. You can link your Bolt card to your account and spend your sats directly out of your account as if you would a bank account. And you can also smash by because they are an exchange. They're doing great work, Danny and the team over at Coin Corner. Relay, R-E-L-A-I C-H forward slash bitten are based in Switzerland, accepting euros, Swiss, and there's a way around if you want to use pounds too. Just reach out to myself or the team at Relay. They also have a private service. Their app is excellent and they've got a big upgrade coming soon. You're going to be able to smash by directly from your card and some other services. Look out for the news. Once you've got your coins, consider coin joining. There are a few services around. Go and do your own research, as always. I've had Max Hillebrand on the show recently talking about wasabiwallet.io. You download the software on your desktop. It's very simple, very quick. Send in a few Satoshis and see if you like the experience of coin joining. Then if you are happy with that, you can start perhaps going through your stack and coin joining a little bit more if you're not comfortable doing that. Going forward, anything that you earn or anything that you pull off exchanges going forward, you might want to consider coin joining. Get comfortable with the process. Do your own research, like I said. But that's wasabiwallet.io. Then you move those coins, of course, onto your signing device. The team at shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten have you covered. Another Swiss company. Get the Bitbox 02 Bitcoin only edition wallet. Get 5% discount using the code bitten. Then check out the conferences coming up. Amsterdam, Liberty Now Lifetime in Prague, 21st, 23rd of November. 
and Pacific Bitcoin coming up in November. Enjoy this one with Morgan. All right, we're recording, Lauren. We've got Morgan here. Hi. Hi, Lauren. So I have one simple question, and uh, I have one simple question, and the question is, what do you love about Bitcoin? Oh, what a good question. So what I love the most about Bitcoin is the future I believe it affords my family. Um, I think that in the fiat world, we live in kind of a hopeless environment where you don't really have that many options to preserve your money. And it's, it's depressing, actually, to think about that you can just work really, really hard your whole life and that you're forced to save in things like stocks and bonds. Um, only to take a lot of excessive risk with with your hard-earned money and hope to provide for your family in the future. Um, whereas with Bitcoin, I see that as just a place where you can store long-term savings and you can provide for your family and where the future looks quite bright. Wow. Yep, that's a very good answer. Very succinct. What would you expect from somebody that wrote a book like this? Yeah. Huh? <laughs> A lot, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, she just gave you a lot. A very, pre very precise and concise answer. What do you feel about saving? Uh, um... Have you ever given it much thought? Okay. So at Easter time, when you find all the Easter eggs. I don't save them. <laughs> <laughs> Who saves them? Who saves them the longest? Samuel saves them for like years. He's Oof. like. Well, not years. I'm 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 exaggerating, but like he saves them for months. And I'm just like, how? Because I'm like one of those persons where I'm like, okay, I'm gonna take a bite. That's it. Two bites later, it's all gone. It's like, yeah, it's crazy. So this is a little uh, social experiment we can run at home, uh, especially with twins, which is always amusing. Uh, without them even realizing, we're running a social experiment because they get the same amount of Easter eggs, but. Weeks later, Samuel will just walk on down, swing open the fridge, pull out one of his Easter eggs that he's saved for himself in cold storage, and uh, and enjoy it. And these guys are sitting around hating him, aren't you? Sometimes he like, I mean, sometimes he's like, "Come on, Lauren, if you play football with me, I'll give you an Easter egg." <laughs> yeah. And I'm just like, "Okay." <laughs> So then he, he bribes you with them too. He could use his Easter egg currency. <laughs> the, the Easter egg currency. Yes, exactly. Because, uh, you know, they're abundant and then scarce very quickly. Yeah, it's a they? new altcoin. It's mm -hmm. a new <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so next Easter time, what are you thinking of doing? Hiding them. Hiding them from yourself? Yes. So you're your own worst enemy? Well, maybe Morgan has a few tricks up her sleeve. You could put them in deep cold storage. You could freeze some of them. Because if you take it out of the freezer, you can't eat it right away. You still have to wait. So then you have this decision point where it's starting to defrost and you can decide, mm, actually, I'm going to put it back in deep cold freeze. And it's not going to ruin your candy. Uh, yeah. It's like long, a... long-term savings. That's a good idea. And mm -hmm. sometimes... I will outbeat Samuel. Well, if you outsave Samuel, then you can um, bribe him, bribe him or, buy, or or offer him reward for work in return. Yep, you could trade your um, 
yeah, your Easter egg currency for something that you want to do rather than having to play football with him. Mm-hmm. What would you, uh, what would you offer him to do in return? I'll give him five Easter eggs to do my math. <laughs> <laughs> it's a free market, you know. There you go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh, very I want... honest. I like that about you, Lauren. <laughs> do, do you want to? Do you want to say goodbye to Morgan? Yep. Bye. Thank you. Bye, Lauren. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. Well, thanks for coming on, Morgan. And, uh, you know, apologize to Pierre because I know you've probably stolen the one chair in your house today. Yeah. To do this. <laughs> to sit on. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so he's probably at the standing desk or, you know, doing whatever he needs to do just to get through the next few hours without sitting down. Absolutely. Uh, Our kids complain all the time about standing for dinner. They don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have one office chair that we share. Yeah. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. Right. Yeah. Uh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so it was great to meet you and Pierre in, in Biarritz. And this is what uh, led us to, to setting this up and uh, getting, a, getting a copy of your book. And I've been leafing through it and it's really cool. And I feel as though like the whole first part of the book that story that you lay out of that um that couple i think you call them gary and christina uh as example just pseudonymous names is so many of us it's just crazy and it was definitely me back in those days uh pre-2014 where the guy is just working his ass off at a job he hates painted himself into this career that he had no idea how he ever got there in the first place and 15 to 18 years down the line he's got a wife and four kids at home he never sees and he feels like a lodger in his own house and the wife feels like a single mum and goes to all of these events and the guy's never there and she's making the excuses like it was like yep you may as well have put the names dan and claire instead of gary and christina (laughs) (laughs) so yeah it's very I, I urge everybody to read it because there are so many of these little touch points, especially now in the Bitcoin space, where a lot of people are considering leaving their fiat life to try and make a go of it in, in Bitcoin land. Um, but you went through the same thing yourself. And, and I want to delve into your own personal story because that's the best way that books are written when you've been through that thing yourself and then you've written about it and shared your experience. So if we wind back to Pre-2010, you were likely studying in university. I'm sure you had a lot of expectation piled on your shoulders from parents, grandparents, aunties, uncles, whoever. What was going on there in those days for you? I was a deep disappointment to my family. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So um, I went to school to be pre-med and I am not currently a doctor. So as far as my family was concerned, um, it's funny too, because the only class that I had left to finish out pre-med was second semester physics, one class. And I was like, I just, I don't want to do this. And my mom, I remember this conversation. I'll never forget this because they, both my parents were on the phone and my mom said, it's one more class. It's one class. What are you even thinking? Just take it just in case. And I was like, no, I really, I just really don't want to be a doctor. Um, and so obviously that was like disappointment number one for my family. And then also that, um, 
I had no idea what I was going to do. And I had a health science degree um, and I was looking to get into finance and they were just thinking like, how, what are you like, what are you doing? Um, I fortuitously got a job um, with some help. Um, I had, we had a family friend who um, used my dad as a dentist, practiced tooth, came into my dad's office. I happened to be helping my parents that week. I almost never helped my parents in the office either. So it feels very um, serendipitous that, that this event happened. And he was like, just come in and interview. You know, I know your family. I've known your family for a long time. Like, just come on in. And so I came in and I interviewed and they were like, yeah, you can uh, be an intern for us. And um, it was a job on the floor of the American Stock Exchange, um, basically getting coffee for a bunch of guys who traded equity options. Um, that was my job. And I was thrilled. <laughs> I was like, this is the best. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to get to like see people yelling in a pit and um, seeing what all the trading's really about. And that was really exciting and sexy to me at the time. So I graduated in 2008 and um I took that job. Um, I got that job actually two days before Bear Stearns went out of business. Um, so that was the, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the environment at the time. And I remember thinking like, oh, do I still have this unpaid internship? You know, like, are they even going to let me show up even though they don't have to pay me? And they were like, yeah, yeah, still come. It's fine. Um, and they told me um, after I had been working there for like a few weeks that if I passed the series seven, that they would actually give me a paying job. Um, and for somebody like me hearing you will pay me <laughs> was like the biggest motivator. Um, so I just studied, um, I took like a little, it was like one of these little classes where you like study for three days straight from nine to nine or whatever. Um, and then studied for a couple more weeks and then took the exam and passed. Um, I think way faster than anyone thought that I would be able to do that. Um, especially considering I didn't have a finance background and then they gave me a little account to trade. So <laughs> that's basically how I got started. Um, but definitely was not the direction that anybody had hoped or dreamed I was going to go in. Were you led to the bright lights and the, you know, the, the path paved with gold to that finance career? Was that what was being hung over like the college graduates kids head at that point? Yeah, I was really into economics. I think more than the average child is, um, like I read a lot of Ayn Rand in high school and was very influenced by her and then um, wanted more when I got to college. And I wasn't even taking those classes, but I somehow found um, the Mises Institute and I started reading um, Mises and I found Rothbard from that as well, which is actually now how I have my husband. So I'm grateful to Marie Rothbard forever and ever. (laughs) And um and branched out to found like this guy Garrett Garrett was like reading all he had some novels and also some like they were more editorials that he used to write for a paper back when the New Deal was happening. Um, so I was always really kind of into that stuff. Um, but I didn't really put two and two together because it, I had always said when I was growing up that I was going to be a doctor. Um, and my family has a lot of people in the medical profession, so it just sort of seemed like the route I was supposed to go down. Um, and it never occurred to me that maybe there'd be something else to do. Um, so like, even though I was like really always been really into math and was reading all of these, these economics books and was particularly into like the Austrian side of things, it never occurred to me that maybe I would want to do something with that until I was basically a, you know, a second semester senior (laughs) in college. Well, it's funny. We have a very similar story with the entering the financial markets. I met a guy that uh, ran the foreign exchange spot mark dollar mark desk uh at a family barbecue and ended up getting the same same gig as you like uh, come on for two weeks as an intern i had to do something like that for my 
college A level anyway to go and spend two weeks in an office in a working environment and then come back and do a written project on it and whatever else, you know, all that is so nonsense looking back at it. But I spent two weeks on that um, dollar mark for an exchange spot desk and blew me away. And all I was doing was getting people's coffees, their breakfasts. I was having bacon sandwiches thrown at my head across the room because it didn't have enough butter on it or it was the wrong color bread or something yeah. you know the environment I know yep yeah uh but it felt so fast paced so exciting and full of adrenaline and the guys you know as a young guy of 19 they were well paid you could see you could tell they were well paid I mean hell I was parking their Bentleys and Ferraris so you knew mm. they were well paid so yeah. that carrot was immediately dangled um but you have to go through all of that hell first. You know, it's kind of a right of passage boot camp type thing, which again, <laughs> yeah, exactly, isn't the greatest uh, experience. So, were you was were the pits still open at that point? Yeah, they were. So they were starting to be wound down more by mm. these high frequency trading firms, um, what people were calling dark pools at the time, because um, yeah. they didn't really know what was going on, um, and there was a lot of fuss about it of like that trading was sort of becoming a dying art and more of a computer science. Um, so when I was there, I mean, I think also though 2008 happened to be sort of the perfect storm for options traders. So anyone recalls like the VIX, which is the measure of volatility, um, it spiked and went, I think it went to like 90 or something like that. Like it's normally around somewhere between 16 and 20. So like to put that into perspective, it's a huge move. Um, and so when people are options traders, most people actually want to sell options and they sell them to options traders. And then options traders hedge their books around that so that they can make money on the spread and so forth. So they tend to be long volatility. Being long volatility means that you pay to own these options and you have something called decay. So in low volatility markets, option um, market makers tend to, they they don't, it's not that they lose money, but I mean, they can, they can more easily lose money if they don't know what they're doing. They're not hedging properly. And um, and especially if like the decay on the portfolio is is outpacing what they're making from making a market. But in a 2008 style scenario where the VIX spikes, they make money just by holding those options. Um, so right away, like an option would just be worth more um, just based on the fact that people don't know where that stock is going to go. Um, so being there in 2008 was actually really fortuitous because that was actually one of the one places where they weren't going to go out of business. They were actually like, they were really making money, a lot of money in 2008. The true issue is actually in 2009, if you weren't able to get out of these options in time, now you had very high priced options that you were paying the decay on and they were basically slowly bleeding money throughout 2009 trying to get out of these positions. So you had to be a little bit more of a creative market maker and that was also the time where really things were switching. I think that if 2008 hadn't happened, that probably the switch to um, upstairs high frequency trading type offices probably would have happened sooner, but because they had this kind of boom um, in 2008. And then again, I think it was in 2011, because there was still some volatility happening, um, where these firms were really still able to exist. Um, but the last time I went down there was, I want to say 2014, I went down there with the CFA Society of New York to ring the bell. And uh, I hadn't been back since 2011. And it was, it's basically like a movie set there now. Um, like CNBC had completely taken over. They had like a giant room on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, and they were like, they're basically like the equivalent of, you know, kids trading in the basement in the corner. Um, 
I guess there just were so few traders left. Everyone had pretty much like moved out by 2014. So I wonder what's down there now. I mean, I'm sure it's even worse. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. I, you know, it's, again, you feed off that energy, don't you? Um, but what would yeah. you say to people that are listening to this now who have dabbled themselves in options trading on their Bitcoin stack? Yeah. <laughs> I would wonder why you're doing that. So, I mean, I think that there are just such there's such lower hanging fruit out there to make money in Bitcoin. Like that why would you risk your stack? Um, and Michael Sarah likes to call it this pristine asset. And it's like, why would you take this perfectly pristine asset and then leverage it or give yourself the opportunity to lose it? You know, it's like you already you figured out a way to own it. Like now figure out a way to not, you know basically lose it. Um, so for me, it just seems like a crazy thing to do. I mean, I guess if you're super professional and you know what you're doing, if you're in the top 1% of traders, that's totally different mm -hmm. than the average person going out there trying to trade <laughs> options or even just be, you know, lending out their Bitcoin and so forth. Um, but most people don't make money doing these things. They really don't. Um, and I think that that really needs to be made clear. Um, and I think that just goes for trading in general. Like if you're trading around your Bitcoin and you're trading in and out of all coins, or you think you can time the market, the truth is, is that you can't. Um, and they've done studies on this. It's basically like a batting average. So even if you're right, let's say 70% of the time, which is a really high batting average, um, you're only right 70% of the time in the decision that you're making, right? So if you're right 70% of the time, one time you're right 70% of the time. If you make another decision, now you're multiplying that out. So now you're right 49% of the time, right? Like, and so forth. And it gets slower and lower and lower and lower um, until, you know, at some point you're very, you're not right very often, right? Because just the math of probability. So I think people often forget that. Um, but even if, there's that 30% chance that you're going to be wrong in that scenario. And in really in every single scenario and being right 70% of the time is actually really, really difficult. Um, so to go from being right more than half the time to being right less than half the time in just two decisions is, I mean, it's, it's a losing game really in my mind. Yeah. Is there a case for writing covered calls uh, at the strike price that you're you would be happy to sell your bitcoin and take that premium in in the interim that's about the only thing i could think of someone might there might be a case for that otherwise please guys just sit tight on your hands and hold your bitcoin but uh, <laughs> what 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 are your what are your thoughts on that yeah i think covered call writing is a little bit different i think you have to gauge the volatility and how far the the price would really need to move to make it worth it for you right because selling thing selling a call that's closer to strike price of where the price is today is obviously obviously going to give you more money than selling something farther out mm -hmm. um and then the question is really i think that bitcoiners think oh i would want to sell it at that price but when it goes to that price most of us actually don't want to sell there no, uh -uh. so i think there's like a psychological <laughs> aspect to it i guess if along the way you were adding to your bitcoin stack um, through selling covered calls, there could be some sort of strategy there where your dollar cost averaging in. But again, if you get called away, maybe you get called away more than you were able to add to your stack and maybe it wasn't worth it. I'm going to go along with it's not worth it. Don't go down the rabbit hole. Stick to your current DCA plan. Mine yeah. as much fear as you can and uh, perhaps try and find yourself a, a Bitcoin job or add value to uh, a, a young Bitcoin company out there where you can earn some extra sats on the side. That I mean... I having totally spent, agree. 
having spent 18 years as a foreign exchange broker, an options broker in between the options traders and just seeing like the level of carnage on the street when people just get wiped out. It happens instantly and very, very quickly. And these are the guys that have all the information, right? Mm -hmm. And they still get wrecked. Yep. You couldn't be closer to the information. If you tried, you are literally drinking the first drops from the spigot as a foreign exchange bro uh, trader, excuse me, and you're still getting wrecked. So yep. what makes anybody out there think they're going to have an edge? You don't. Totally. I couldn't agree more. Um, and like the lower hanging fruit I'm mentioning is you literally, you make money, you spend less than you make, and then you have the ability to stack. So that to me seems so much easier and there's going to be a lot more bang for your buck to do it that way than, you know, spending more than you make and trying to borrow against your Bitcoin and make more Bitcoin, right? I mean, these are just strategies that people do because they don't want to control the other underlying aspect of that equation, which is expenses. Um, and it's hard to do that, right? I mean, we're kind of wired to when we see something, we want to go get it. Mm -hmm. um, that's the way that we are as human beings. And there's a good side to that, right? When you see a really good trait in somebody else or um, like they do something really nice for somebody else or so forth, right? You see that and you're like, oh, I really wish I could be like that. That's mm -hmm. a good thing to see and pick up as opposed to, you know, just some random trash that you order on Amazon and then it ends up in the garbage six months later, right? Like yep. <laughs> there's a difference. So I think that people need to just recognize what's going on in their in in the spending portion of their equation um and if really nothing can go in the spending portion of your equation then you got to increase income the gucci loafers and the gold plated cufflinks that's what yeah. uh that's what <laughs> people were spending their money on in our game so when you left that because you talk about this in your book that's a big decision right to walk away from that and then go into what you would call uh, a much more kind of boring mm -hmm. <laughs> existence <laughs> yeah. compared to that. Nothing can compare to that. Um, so, and with that, you have to go through like a, a huge loss of identity. This is what keeps people in the positions that they find themselves in. I find the sunk yeah. cost fallacy and the identity that they've built up around themselves, which they truly believe is themselves how did you I, deal with all of that yeah it's a i mean it's it's rough it's one of those things where like there's something very alluring sexy interesting exciting about trading that is just not there in pretty much any other like any other profession i could think of right i mean yeah you get adrenaline in other professions for sure um but you're like really hanging by a thread <laughs> in some of these roles where you're not really even sure if you're going to like, you know, are you even going to have a job sometimes at the end of the day, depending on the decisions you make, right? Like there's something about that. That's just, um, it's very, uh, emotionally provoking. Um, so leaving that behind, there was also a status associated with it because I got this job at such a young age. Um, and people knew me as somebody who did that despite not having the background that I was supposed to have to have it. There was a lot of status wrapped up in me having that role. Um, it became very obvious to me though, that I, I couldn't stay where I was and I had to find something else. Um, I wanted to stay as a trader, um, but things were increasingly looking like they were moving towards the computer science direction and not in the direction that I had a background in. So, and I definitely was like, okay, well, I don't want to go back to school. That sounds horrible. Um, <laughs> so, 
and really not for a computer science degree either. So, um, yeah, so it just seemed sort of obvious to me that I had to do something else, but it was very difficult to leave that behind. Um, and also the role that I ended up taking was, um, was definitely sort of, I would say looked down upon because when you become a financial advisor after being in, the role of trader, it means that you failed. You're not a good trader and therefore you're now a financial advisor or you're selling insurance, right? Um, so, but the job I took was for a large private wealth management team at Merrill Lynch. Um, and they actually needed somebody like me because they unfortunately for their clients did a lot of trading. Um, so mm -hmm. that's how I, I got that role. I think actually the most trading that I ever did was for that role. Um, <laughs> we were like trading large FX positions. Um, we were in about a inner um, emerging market debt a lot. Um, the stock trading was just, it was off the charts. Like it was just constant. Every time there was a new research report, the advisor would call the clients, everybody would get into something new. We would sell something else. Be, I'm like, just like, this is just, this is just not what I ever, um, thought of when I thought of wealth management. Um, and really actually kind of skewed my thought, my, my thoughts on what wealth management was. I was like, oh, I guess wealthy people do just like trade their assets around all the time. Um, and I didn't have a huge background in what I do now at the time then. So I actually thought that that was pretty normal. Turns out that's not normal. <laughs> nope. It's not normal. Yeah, it's not normal and really not what a anyone should be doing. And it's definitely not what an advisor should be doing on behalf of their clients. So um, all around, it was um, it was a distinct learning experience for me. The incentive structure, right? Yeah. Always yeah. I the mean, problem. Always the problem. Yeah. You get paid based on the trades and so forth. Um, or if you're running these managed accounts, you're getting basically a 1% fee to like sit on a bunch of high fee mutual funds for your client. It's just, it's the incentives are just, they're so wrong and lost and terrible. So every time you get that phone call to say, we need to diversify your portfolio, it's because they need to get some extra commission out of their client base. And so they're calling around their client base, switching you in and out of positions, selling you the story of, you know, the latest report shows, blah, 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 buzzword after buzzword. And the mm -hmm. guy at the end of the phone, he's too busy to either either think about it or is bamboozled and just said, yeah, just do whatever you want, you know, go for it. Meanwhile, the guy puts all that in, puts the trades through, armpits a load of stuff, gets the commission. End of the day wrapped up and we'll do the same thing to the next 10 clients in his portfolio the next day. And on mm -hmm. and on. And on the whole, and on. And, and that's just Merrill Lynch. Yeah. So multiply that by 50, by 100, by 150 other companies that are doing all of the same. <laughs> <laughs> and you just got this merry-go-round of, you know, and of course, it's even better if you're in an emerging market stock, because then you've got a currency conversion on top of that to do yep. as well. Yeah. And then you could decide, oh, do we want to hold the currency? Do we want to hedge the currency? You yep. can have that conversation with the client. Oh, well, we should hedge the currency. And you're like, <laughs> okay, another commission. <laughs> it's all so icky. Yeah. It really is. The thing that actually, the one that really got me, though, is when I got there. So I hadn't seen anything that was going on in the portfolios, obviously, prior to being hired. But after I got there, and I had a pretty deep options background at this point. I'd been trading options for a few years by the time I got there. And... I noticed that we had uh, very, very, very deep in the money calls on Apple mm. that we were continually rolling not to get called out. Yeah. Mm. So we're talking like they were like 60% in the money. <laughs> yeah. 
And so, and we never got out of that position. In the two years that I worked there, I rolled those options every single month. You're kidding. No. Huh. And how, so, again, how like many other of, people? Yeah, how many other people are doing that? But it kind of goes back to what you were saying about like, do you, should you sell covered calls about over on your Bitcoin? It's like, okay, well, you actually could get yourself in a scenario where you don't want to sell your Bitcoin. So now you're rolling these calls. You're paying to roll these calls. You're mm. paying commission to do it. You're losing money on the whole process. Um, yeah, you're getting deeper and deeper into the money. And at one point, do you just say, okay, I'm just going to let my Bitcoin go? Mm. Don't do it, plebs. Yeah. Uh, did you, growing up, were you taught about money, about saving? Was that something your parents pushed down onto you pretty hard? Or was that something you kind of just picked up along the way? So my parents, I think my parents tried, um, but they were stuck with the limits of their own knowledge of money. Um, my dad would explain things kind of esoterically to me, and I didn't really understand what he was talking about. So like specific examples come to mind, um, like saving for a rainy day. They really used rainy day. Um, and so like I've used that with my son because we've got a Berenstain Bear book that talks about, you know, you have to save money for a rainy day. But then we talk about what the rainy day is, right? It's not just because it's raining outside. Like I remember turning to my parents and being like, you saved all that money and it's raining. Like, what are we going to do with <laughs> yeah, it? Let's you know? <laughs> and they're just like... <laughs> okay, whatever. Um, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. I'm like, okay, I guess I don't really understand. Um, or like we would talk about the price of things, but it didn't, it wasn't relative to anything that I can understand. So like I just I didn't know like what we made or what the family's finances looked like. So when I heard things about prices going up or that thing being expensive, like I remember being at a store shopping for summer camp stuff and my mom being like, You can't have those shorts, they're very expensive. And me just thinking like but I don't, I don't understand why these are expensive and why that thing's not, even though they cost the same, you know, like it didn't, it didn't make any sense in my head. So I feel like they could have been a little bit more practical <laughs> in that regard. My dad also liked to always talk to me about the insurance thing where he would be like, I make a bet with an insurance company that I'm going to die. And the insurance bets me that I'm not. And I'm, and I would always be like, why are you going to make a bet that you're going to die? Who would do that? <laughs> <laughs> like it just didn't really register so so um but I don't think I think that they tried right like I think that they truly tried to give my sister and I a background in personal finance the best that they knew how to do um most of it I would say I learned after I got a salary had expenses and was like oh that's what savings is I don't have any I need to figure out how to get some you know, like that sort of a thing of just being like looking at my pay stub and being like, oh, it's really different what my salary is and what actually goes into my pocket. Um, I even remember saying to um, to my aunt one time, I have all these expenses. And she was like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, I have to pay FICA and I have to pay New York State <laughs> and New York City. She's like, those are taxes. We, they're not expenses. Um, so <laughs> like, well, you know, we could debate on whether or not yeah. their taxes are expenses, but yeah. Well, Seth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it was just, it was definitely a very big, it was a steep learning curve for me. And I think that for most people it probably is. Um, and I think that the difference for most people is that they don't do anything with it. They just kind of suffer in silence um, and, and don't figure out how to get out of that situation. Whereas I was like, okay, I need to like really sort out here what's going on with my financial situation. Mm -hmm. So you 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 done the the stint at Merrill Lynch. At some point, the light bulb goes off on your head that this is probably 
not something you want to be doing for the next 20 to 25 years of your life. Uh, so you had another big decision to make, and that was start your own firm. Uh, I that, wish it were that simple. That yeah. that would have been like a nice way to be like, and then I only did that for a couple of years, and I realized that was garbage. No, that's not what happened. Um, <laughs> so what happened was is that while I was at Maryland, I realized that what I was doing was not what I wanted to be doing. So I decided I was going to go study for the CFA exams because I thought if I studied for the CFA exams, then I can get a portfolio manager job. And then I could be the person that's making the investment decisions and writing those research reports rather than being the one who has to read these stupid reports and then put the trades on. So that was not, I mean, looking back on it now, I'm like, that was kind of, you know, not maybe the right thought process. But um, so that was the route I went down. I started studying for that. I passed level one while I was still at Merrill Lynch. Um, my I switched teams while I was at Merrill Lynch um, to a um, advisor who had African and French clients. Similar thing happening though with like with what was going on in the portfolios, lots of lots of FX trading. Um, past level two and level three while I was there, we moved to UBS in the meantime. Um, realized at that point, okay, all of these warehouses are the same. Mm -hmm. Like what's going on at Merrill Lynch is literally exactly the same thing at UBS, and the only difference was that we got a payout to move. Um, that was the only difference. So it was like very obvious to me, and I mean. People who know me know that like I've got sort of this got this like innate integrity thing of like you gotta always do right, you have to do the right thing, it has to be fair, it should be just like and it ate away at me um in the four years I was at these two places of just like this is not right, we're not doing the right thing. Um, so after that, I heard from this person who I had studied um this I had taken level three of the CFA exams with. I actually sat next to him. Um, at the exam was how we met. And then we randomly ran into each other at some CFA society event. And he said he was starting his own firm. And I was like, you could just like start your own firm. <laughs> what? Um, so I, uh, like started talking to him about what he was doing and thought about joining his firm. And then I was like, this guy could start his own firm. Like I could totally start my own firm. Um, and that was basically how origin wealth advisors was born. It was on like after I got off the phone with this guy being like, I don't need to join this person's firm. Um, yeah, which maybe is not like the best way to make a um, a decision about your business, but I tend to be very decisive. So once I decide on something, like it's kind of, that's it. And I'm going to run with it. Um, and here we are eight years later. I mean, my firm's still here. It's flourishing. Um, it's now a Bitcoin financial planning practice. It's way different than what it was when we first started. Right, exactly. So when you did first start, was Bitcoin in your life at that point? Yeah, so it was. Pierre and I met in 2013. Um, I had heard of Bitcoin prior to meeting Pierre. Um, I had read a Mises Institute article about it when it was like a dollar or two dollars. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. Um, and I remember talking to some other gold bug at work about it and him being like, no, it's stupid. You shouldn't mm -hmm. do that. And I was like, no, I think like, you know, I could just put like a hundred dollars into it or whatever. And it wouldn't be a big deal. And so I went on, figured out how to buy it, went to Mt. Gox's website, started filling out stuff and then was like you have to like wire money to japan to like not your own account um and being <laughs> i think actually being in financial services just being like you can't just randomly wire yeah. money to japan like you don't do that so it's like no this is definitely a scam i don't you know so i didn't do it i couldn't figure i didn't figure out any other way to buy it at the time and i just sort of dropped it and didn't think about it again 
And then um, I met Pierre in 2013 and it was like the only thing he wanted to talk about. So (laughs) (laughs) I got a reintroduction to Bitcoin about a year and a half later or so. Um, So yeah, I had already known about Bitcoin. Um, I was already talking to people at UBS about it and they were laughing at me um, and they thought that I was crazy. And I was like, Western Union's going to go out of business was one of the things I used to say, like remittances are dead. People are only going to use Bitcoin. Um, And I was very, very excited about it. And then when I started my own firm, I was like, well, I need to be a little bit more conservative because I am the owner of this business and I can't just like run around being this crazy Bitcoin lady. I should probably <laughs> uh, not draw attention to myself, get regulators up my butt and, you know, just like try to like make this thing work. Um, so I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. In 2014, I, I knew about it for sure. And I was invested in it, but I didn't um, I didn't say mention it really to any clients. Um, it wasn't really until 2016, actually, that I started getting questions from clients about it. And at that point, I started advising on it. All right. We can't just brush over how you and Pierre met because the plebs are going to want to know, like, you know, <laughs> like it's some back channel in a Mises forum or something like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I was on a website and so was Pierre on a website called OkCupid. Back then, you didn't just like swipe right and find, you know, the match of your dreams. Back then, you filled out a questionnaire. Um, and people, you were matched based on your personalities. And so I was living in New York at the time. Pierre was living in San Antonio and I didn't know about Pierre, but when I filled out my profile, I wasn't really that gung ho about online dating because it wasn't that popular at the time. And I just thought, all right, well, I'll just have this thing. And just in case any Austrian type style (laughs) econ interested men find this, I'll just put that. I like Rothbard on my profile and, you know, maybe somebody will see that and then maybe they'll want to date me and it'll, we'll work out happily ever after. And kind of forgot about it, you know, didn't use that website that much um, and sort of went about my business. And Pierre was living in San Antonio and he um, he didn't know anyone in San Antonio and he wanted to date and he didn't really like anyone locally. So <laughs> just like so Pierre to like look on the website and be like, nah, not these people searched Rothbard nationally, like basically was like put like max amount of miles that you could put on the thing and wrote Rothbard in and hit search um, and found me. <laughs> You're kidding. <laughs> yeah. And we had like a ni- 90% overlap on like our personality types too of like of us matching. We just that the distance was too far to like a, for us to ever have popped up in each other's speeds. So uh, as Pierre likes to say, we're, we're 90% compatible, but we're 10% non-compatible. And that makes us interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's really, so yeah, we, he sent me a message being like, Hey, like we live really far, but we have a lot in common. Let's be pen pals. And so we did, we would like email every now and then. And then Pierre got a job at Deloitte, um, in Houston. And that job actually ended up moving him to New York. Um, and oh. when he moved to New York, we met. Crazy. Wow. Mm-hmm. How things end up, how the world shapes itself. It's uh, I know. that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of incredible how that happens. So, um, yeah, Pierre and I have actually known each other longer than a decade now, um, and we were together almost a decade um, in the spring. Wow, awesome, and congrats! And like I said, it was uh, it was great to meet uh, the pair of you, and uh, hopefully next time we'll be the whole fam. Um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, that would be great. We felt the same way. We were very happy to meet um to meet you and Claire and the kids. Um and also um the prince and his wife and his son. So it was a really nice experience for us. Yeah, it was a great time. Okay, so you start the business and build it, they will come or tumbleweed <laughs> and crickets. <laughs> yeah, it was a little of both for sure. 
<laughs> um, so I actually like to tell the story. My first paying client was um, this nice lady who is referred to me. Um, she was a friend of a friend's mom. And I was so nervous um, about charging her my normal fee that she paid me $375 a year to do finance, to do financial planning. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I would say it was mostly crickets and tumbleweeds, but I did try, I put myself out there quite a lot more. So I think it actually has made me the person I am today because, um, if anyone had met me a decade ago, I wouldn't be in this position where I could easily get on a podcast and talk. Um, I was really behind the scenes quite a bit in all of my roles. I didn't, I wasn't client facing for the most part. Um, I wasn't very outgoing. Um, and these, I think people who know me now don't remember, or they didn't know me back then. So they wouldn't even ever think of me as somebody who was like that, but it was actually really hard for me to put myself out there. Um, and to even have the confidence to like, tell somebody I had a business. The first time I told somebody I had a business, I whispered, I was mm. like, and I started my firm and they were like, what? <laughs> it's like at a big cocktail, but, and I started my own investment firm <laughs> you know i was like so nervous and sweating um and i'm it's just, it's like kind of night and day now about that kind of thing mm -hmm. um the firm was very invest investment focused when i first opened so i had my cfa i was like i'm gonna run these cool portfolios it's gonna be awesome and then um i actually got a good lead from somebody who um this is it was, she was a wealthy woman ran her own business and it would have been a great client for me and so I took a meeting with her and like I spruced up this conference room and I like you know did all the things I got her water and I got like you know a nice picture and I had like notes laid out and like everything was beautiful and I was very nervous and she asked me if I could help her open a profit sharing plan and I literally didn't know what that was like I, I was like I don't recall seeing that on the CFA exams. Like what is a product? So I'm like thinking, okay, yeah, I can help you open that. But like, she knew just by how I responded that like, I was not the right person for this. So I went home and I Googled what a profit sharing plan was. And I realized what I actually needed was the CFP, which is the certified financial planner designation, not the CFA. If I was going to help individuals with their finances. So, um, I studied for that. Um, and thankfully with the CFA, you get to like kind of place out of all of the curriculum. You just have to sort of study some books and take some tests rather than like actually taking two years worth of curriculum before you can even take a test. So um, I got to sort of shortcut my way into the CFP because of the CFA. So that worked out um, and got my CFP in 2016. And then from there, I would say like truly origin wealth advisors as we know it today was born because we switched from investment management to financial planning. Um, and then the road has just been more and more down the financial planning route since. So I got to ask, what is a profit sharing program then? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a profit sharing plan is something that you put on top of a retirement plan. So you can have them on, on like on 401k plans where basically the employee can still contribute like they normally would to their to their retirement. And then the business itself can decide to have the employee and themselves share in profits and be able to put in additional money into the retirement plan on both their behalf and the employee's behalf. And the thing that's nice about it for employers is that in doing so, the employer saves on taxes. And usually, depending on how many employees they have, if you have a lot of employees, it's, it's the, the math doesn't work out this way. But if you have you know two or three employees, you might save so much on taxes from doing it that it actually covers the contribution that you're going to make on behalf of your employees. So instead of paying the government, you give your employees a bonus, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, employees like that and employers like that because they otherwise would have given it to the government. So, Right. Okay. Now, during your uh, years of doing this, you've 
definitely, I'm sure, come across those couples that come in where you've got the guy, Bitcoin gung-ho, the wife, like, what the hell is this dude talking about? This is crazy. <laughs> Why is he trying to drag all of our savings into this? Morgan, please talk sense into him. And you're stuck like a rabbit between the headlights sort of thing because you've got your Bitcoin hat on at the same time and your wealth management hat on the uh, on the other uh, uh, on, at the same time. Excuse me. How do you handle those situations, and what do you advise to people that are perhaps stuck in that situation? Because there's a lot of people out there. Yeah, yeah. So I love that question. Uh, I like to think of myself more as a conversation facilitator rather than somebody who has all the answers. So often what I see in that scenario is that the husband thinks that in hiring me, that I will be able to beat the wife into buying Bitcoin. Or in charge Billy's wife. (laughs) And then he won't have to do the work that he's been trying to do maybe for the last you know, two to five years. Um, he's like, you know, all I do is tell my wife about Bitcoin and she doesn't hear what I'm saying. And so what I hear when I hear that is all I do is talk at my wife and I don't listen to her. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so really my role there, like as much as, yeah, it would be great if I also talked at your wife and then she was like, oh, a woman is telling me this. I will magically now be a Bitcoiner, but that's just not how it works, right? Like just because I'm saying it doesn't make it any different than the husband saying it. So and if anything, it could feel like we're ganging up on the spouse who doesn't want to have Bitcoin. So really what, what I'm there for is to facilitate conversation between the two spouses, help the husband, if this is the scenario where it's usually the husband, help the husband hear the wife's concerns, right? Because a lot of the times they don't hear it because you don't want to hear it right? You're already so made, your mind's so made up about Bitcoin that whatever like concerns that your spouse has about it, it just, it's not landing, right? It's mm-hmm. like darts. No, that are because the money's yeah. broken. Yeah, exactly. Don't you see? <laughs> darts bouncing off of a board, right? It's just like, okay, yeah. th- they're not landing here. So yeah. So it's just helping the wife be able to say the things that are on her mind in a way that will help the husband here. And also vice versa, right? Because the wife maybe has been so badgered about Bitcoin that she can't hear any of it either anymore. Um, So being able to facilitate the conversation first, definitely. The second thing is um, helping answer any questions that the spouse who is not into Bitcoin may have in a way that doesn't feel so like she has to be on the defense, you know, (laughs) because a lot of times, right, your spouse might have a question. And for whatever reason, right, it's like, it's different with me and Pierre, right? Pierre asked me a question and it could be like something stupid, like what color is the sky outside? And I'll answer blue, you know, because I'm in a bad mood. And then he'll be like, blue, you know, (laughs) something silly, you know, it's so stupid. And so like in conversations with Bitcoin, you know, you can, you the way that your spouse answers your question might make you be on the defense, even if their answer is the same answer I would give, right? But because I'm not specifically in the situation, I can sound more objective about how I'm answering these questions. I, I'm imagining you two at the dinner table now. Like, uh, did did you see that new meme today on Twitter that uh, so and so posted? <laughs> You'll be having much much different conversations to to most of us, uh, you know, in in, um, in our dinner conversation. Um, so, what I want to ask about is what what's the difference between what you do and please tell me if if this is the same thing, but a fiduciary mm-hmm. is, is that another level of um, CFP, CFA, whatever? I'm not so sure everyone's completely up to speed on all the different acronyms. Yeah. So um, a fiduciary is somebody who puts their clients first rather than themselves, their firm, 
any other business interests that they may have. Um, in the U.S., so I'm not sure how it works internationally, but in the U.S., if you um, own and operate something called a registered investment advisory firm, then you are required to be a fiduciary. Um, if you work at a place like Merrill Lynch, you are not. So right. at a place like Merrill Lynch, you actually have um, you actually have what's called duty to firm before duty to client. Um, and it's it's actually just part of being in the wirehouse system where you are more loyal to the firm than you are to your client. Um, so when people first started going independent and the registered investment advisor was created, um, this was the thing that they were trying to fight was like being able to put your client first rather than putting the firm first. Obviously, that's not always the case, right? Like I think even in registered investment advisory circles, there's still you still have to suss out the advisor <laughs> to see whether or not that person is actually putting your interest first. There's a lot of conflicts of interest that come up. So for instance, there's something called fee only um, versus um, fee based. Um, and the problem with these terms is that they're so close that people get them confused, but they're actually very different. So fee only means that you literally only provide advice um, for a fee. You don't sell any other products. You're not going to get any kind of commissions. You're not selling life insurance to your client. You can give objective advice because you're only receiving the fee that you claim you're receiving. You're not going to get paid in any other way for that client making investment decisions. Um, whereas fee-based is you can take a fee for doing everything I just said, but you can also sell them insurance, sell them a structured product, sell them all sorts of other things where you would then make another set of money or commissions or so forth on that client and in, in having it. So you have a conflict of interest there. So fee only was born because of fee based, right? <laughs> and so forth. So then from fee only, there's another slew of things where people charge an assets under management fee um, or they charge flat fee. So our firm is a fiduciary fee only and flat fee firm. And the reason why is that I found that flat fee is actually there's conflicts of interest in charging in assets under management, especially in financial planning terms. So for instance, a very common question that we get is how much house can I afford, right? Seems innocent and anyone could advise upon it. And then all of a sudden you tell them how much house they can afford. And they say, I want to take $200,000 out of my portfolio to go buy that house we talked about. A fee only advisor who charges assets under management is now going to lose assets when you go and buy that house and they're going to get paid less. So they actually have a conflict of interest there whereby they might tell you, hey, don't go buy a house because I don't want to lose assets. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in my firm where we charge flat fee, we don't care where you put your money, whether you put it in Bitcoin or you decide to go buy a house or wherever, right? We're not going to lose money based on that. So I think that at, especially in the Bitcoin world, this is coming into play because if you do charge an assets under management fee, it's going to be really difficult to be unbiased about Bitcoin especially in the way that people should hold it, right? Because most people should hold it, hold their own keys off an exchange, right? Um, in cold storage in either a multi-sig or single-sig solution. And advisors can't charge on something like that. So they're never going to tell you to do that if they're going to get paid less for telling you to do so. Yeah, massive conflict of interest. And and how do you... So you're always telling your clients, obviously, when you've orange-pilled them or they come to you for advice, the usual stuff get control mm -hmm. of your keys you can put them in touch with the right people um do you have go-tos is do you, do you have anything set up with um i know like unchained for example or anything like that that you can just help plug your clients into yeah so we mostly work with unchained capital i would say is like it's definitely our go-to we have some clients who wanted to do single sig and didn't want to do multi-sig 
Um, and so for those clients, what we talk about is making sure that they're checking their wallet often uh, enough to make sure it has a malfunction, storing their seed and their seed phrases and their wallet separately, um, storing their seed phrases on steel plates, right? Because it could be a serious problem if they, if somebody happens to their wallet and their, um, their paper card gets damaged. Um, so we go through that with them. And we do like most clients to do something like Unchained Capital because- most people that we're dealing with aren't fully orange pilled the way, let's say you or I are. So they're not like, you know, thinking about the dry bag that they're going to go put in the forest somewhere that they're going to check every five years <laughs> because they know exactly where it is on their GPS coordinates. You know, like <laughs> I would say the average person is like, okay, I can keep track of one hardware wallet. I'm going to put that in like, you know, a safe. And then I have a safety deposit box somewhere. Okay. I could put that somewhere. And then, you know, if one of them gets lost, like I've got on chain capital. <laughs> Right. Like that's like the average person's thought about these things. Um, and holding a single SIG is very, I would say very nerve wracking for the average person who has never taken any kind of custody of their assets before. Um, and so, and I actually like the redundancy of multi-sig anyways. I think that really in, in most, like in most situations you should have multi-sig, even if you don't do it through someone like Unchained, you could do your own setup. You can use Sparrow or whatever. You can, you can figure out a way to do it on an open source basis if you didn't want anybody else to hold your keys. So, um, but again, like the redundancy helps, right? Because if you do lose one or it malfunctions and your paper card gets ruined or you're still played for whatever reason, you can't get open, right? <laughs> like there are things that happen here that are beyond our control, in which case you don't want to lose all your money. Yeah. Ah, uh, so many trade-offs, so many, so many different ways to do it. Um, you talk about in the book the um, the personal story of well, no, going through the the process, and you talked about this in your speech as well at uh, the Surf and Bitcoin conference in Biarritz. Um, imagining like what you want your life to be, how you want to live your life, and then reverse engineering that process. Do you, so, so just to leave the listeners with like a, an actionable. Um, takeaway before we close it down do you want to talk about that and how they should be thinking that through yeah definitely i love that question so um in my practice we do something called life planning life planning is the process by which you cast a really wide net on everything that's important to you in your life you then narrow that funnel by prioritizing and choosing a few things that you can really focus on and work on that's important in your life. And then from there, knocking out any obstacles that might get in your way. For most people, there's a list of five um, aspects of their life that come up when they go through the life planning process. Um, that's family, for sure, is always very high on people's list. Um, it's creativity in some way or another, spirituality, your community in, the, in which you live in, and then your place in the world. So most people aren't like, in my most fulfilled life, I have this giant boat, 17 cars, a giant house, and I have, you know, maid service, right? <laughs> and like, maybe that does sound really great. And that is your most fulfilled life. So I'm not knocking it if that is your most fulfilled life. But most people are like, I want to spend more time with my children. I want to, um, to help my community. I want to be somebody prominent in the Bitcoin world. Um, my faith is really important to me and I want to become closer to God. Um, or, you know, creativity is really important to me. I want to work on this new code project, or I want to write a book, or I am really into art, right? There's a number of ways that creativity can be displayed. It doesn't necessarily have to be like drawing on a piece of paper. So I would say that like what, what I'm driving at here though, is that your most fulfilled life is not about what you own. 
and it's more about who you are and what you can who you can be um and what you can do on this earth as opposed to what you can have um and so bringing it to a place where this is practical right that's very impractical advice that i'm now giving people and you asked me to be more practical so i'm going to try to condense this down here so for people what we do really is we ask them what what would it be like to live your most fulfilled life what's in your what is in it how is it different than today what does that look like um, and for a lot of people, literally just answering that question is actually enough um, for you to be able to prioritize what's important. Um, in the life planning work, we then narrow it down and focus it by having people answer um, three very focused questions about what their life would be like if they had all the money in the world. And then, okay, now we take all the money in the world away, but you have your current situation, but your time is limited. What would happen if you only had five to 10 years left to live? Um, and then from there, okay, you have one day left. What's truly important to you? And it's not about what you would do with that day, but it's what would, what have you missed in your life? Who did you not get to be? What did you not get to do? Um, and those, the two questions that constrain down your time, I think really make it apparent to people what, what's important because we actually do sometimes have live thinking we have all the time in the world. Um, and we really don't, even without being sick, um, and having sort of impending death in front of us, we actually don't have all the time in the world. We have certain periods of time where things are the same and then they change because of life cycle events. So if you really think about it, you really do have five to 10 year periods of time that are sort of similar and then they change. And what are you going to do to make the most of that five to 10 year period? Um, and it's probably not like spend all your money on whatever. Um, there's probably a few, a handful of things that would really make your life special. What's the most common thing that people, um, what's the stat? The most common thing people regret as they're, you know, passing to the other side is uh, regret of not spending enough time with loved ones, I think, is the, the most common thing. Yeah, it's definitely the most common thing. Um, people actually also regret working too much mm -hmm. um, because they're not able to admit what they missed out on in working too much. I think it's easier to say, oh, I work too much instead of thinking about, oh, I missed out on, you know, my kids really important practice or soccer game or whatever it is. Um, or I didn't spend enough time with my parents while they were still alive. Um, so definitely spending time with loved ones, I would say is a huge thing that comes up for people. Um, I think it, then it also depends on what's really important to that person. Like for instance, a Bitcoiner might think, you know, they didn't do enough to help the Bitcoin community. Right. That might come up in that question um, or somebody who's really involved in, let's say, their church or in their community. Maybe will feel like they didn't impact that community in the way that they had hoped. Um, so but what you find in these questions when you're really constrained on time is that it actually has to do with others more so than ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's actually really telling of just things in general. So I think that the best thing that we can do for ourselves while we're on this planet is to focus on how we can make ourselves the best version of ourselves. But usually the best version of ourselves is actually how we can interact with others to help others also be the best versions of themselves. And it comes out even more so when you have regrets later in life when you haven't done those things. So I'm, I'm guessing no one's written down uh, the bright green Lambo. Yeah. Uh, in... <laughs> yeah. I've never heard bright green Lambo in question number three, for sure. <laughs> I've heard it in question number one where I have all the money in the world. I would have bright green Lambo. Um, but yeah, it's not... <laughs> <laughs> no for sure yeah it's deep something we all have you know taken much more notice of this idea that time is our ultimate currency and our scarcest asset 
And this is something that Bitcoin is helping rewire all of our brains to to focus more on that and and to want to take more control over our lives in many different areas, whether that is improving your sleep, improving your overall health, improving your diet, improving you know whatever. Like it, the, the rabbit holes seem endless that people are finding that they've been unlocked into thinking that way purely because they've got Bitcoin like backing them up and they can see further into the future than they've ever been able to look before. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I was alluding to when Lauren asked me this question earlier, it's like it gives you hope because you know that there is there will be money for you later. Mm. So you don't have to be in such a rat race type environment. You don't have to keep being on the hamster wheel trying to get money because you're not sure whether or not you're going to have money later. If you know there's some security in your long-term savings, or there's the highest security really in your long-term savings because you're holding something like Bitcoin, it affords you more freedom in how you can live the rest of your life rather than always worrying about when the next dollar is going to come in. Even if you've done a really good job saving dollars, people still worry about when they're going to get the next dollar. And that's just, it's a fiat mindset, right? And we're yeah. conditioned to be that way because we have to be. There's no way out of this system where you're constantly being inflated and diluted out. Oh, and look at Sailor. You know, a perfect example. Like the dude has probably got enough Bitcoin, <laughs> but he's, you know, he's he's transitioned out of his role to free up more of his time to figure out how to get more Bitcoin and just bought another six mil the other day. Like, you yeah. know, it's uh, it's incredible <laughs> that he's managed to do that. And, you know, it, I'm yeah, he, he will say, I'm sure that uh, this is the best way to protect the company for, you know, many, many decades to come. Yeah. But it's still a hell of a lot of stress to go through mm -hmm. to make these sure. decisions. For sure. I think the other thing, though, too, is right. Like if there's less financialization in the system, jobs like you and I used to have aren't as relevant. Um, and therefore, people like most people really shouldn't be living on the edge, right, about whether or not they're even going to have a job by the time they get home because of how mm -hmm. they're trading, right? That adrenaline rush maybe should be saved for the activities where you enjoy getting that adrenaline rush. Like maybe you really like roller coasters or bungee jumping or skydiving, right? But like in a Bitcoin world, you can pursue the, you know, the the job or role or career that is appealing to you rather than the one that's closest to the money um, because you are saving now in something that can actually provide for you over the long term. And then you can go kind of get your thrills from entertainment rather than from your job. Right. Like, and I kind of talk to people about this all the time with their finances. I'm like, your finances aren't your source of entertainment. They shouldn't be right. They shouldn't be your, your main source of emotional drama and entertainment. Um, and so when you take that emotional drama and entertainment out of your finances, right, what's left, you actually have to go find somewhere productive to put that energy. Uh, and that's a good thing, right? For most people, it's good that they're not sitting there trading around on their computer or taking on unnecessary debt to make their bills and expenses work and so forth. Um, and they should know where their money is coming from rather than like being sort of questioning about whether or not they're going to make the bills at the end of the month, right? <laughs> you kind of want to remove that drama from your life. Um, and in doing so, right, you can now have more productive and deeper relationships with those around you that matter and, and pursue something that's important to you. When you project for like 20 to 30 years and you've raised your own kids I mean, you met my kids, I meet Bitcoiner families or Bitcoiners that are looking to start a family. I, I am so bullish for, you know, 
Bitcoiner kids, Bitcoiner families. How do you see that playing out? And uh, how do you discuss Bitcoin and monetary policy and stuff like that uh, around the kids? Uh, I know they're still very young, but you've probably got a few things uh, up your sleeve. <laughs> yeah, so we've got a four and a one-year-old. So obviously we are reading them large sections of Rothbard's Man Economy and State at night. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then we field questions from them because they're just so precocious. Uh, uh, Pierre and I have actually joked about this. So one of the things that we think would be the most, like the worst, the biggest stab to the heart as a parent would be if our if our ch children became Marxists, right. like, oh, <laughs> like they're truly rebelling against us, you know? <laughs> that would be bad. Um, but yeah, so our son who's four, he knows, um, he knows Bitcoin as money. Basically we've taught him that Bitcoin is money and that it's the best kind of money. Um, and so we've, we've reviewed that with him. We've also reviewed like what's kind of happening with our money. Um, and we're, when we talk about sort of dollars and fiat money, or he calls those monies and he calls Bitcoin, Bitcoin, um, which I think is sort of funny, but like, we talk about monies being, you know, something where it's, it's not as secure. It's not as, um, it's, it can't last as long. Um, and so like a lot of those conversations will happen when I'm at the store with my kids where I'll, I'll, I'll sort of have that reaction that my mom had, like, oh, it's so expensive, you know? Yeah. And then I'll be like, so it's expensive because of what the government is doing to our money. And then I kind of explain it. And I think though, like, yeah, it, maybe it's a little bit advanced for my kids, but like my son is starting to get it. Like he's starting to realize, okay, like there are people out there who are manipulating our money in some way or another. I don't totally understand it, but, um, it's not good. Um, and it's, and my, it makes my mom have a bad reaction to things in the store sometimes. Um, and when we talk about Bitcoin, we talk about it just being like, you know, the greatest money that you can ever hold. Um, and so I think as he gets older, right, like we're going to eventually pay him an allowance in Bitcoin. And I think that like things will make a little bit more sense, but I think that there, I mean, there are good books out there for kids. Um, Bitcoin rabbi wrote one. Um, I can't remember the name of this book. I wish, I wish I could. I think it's like Bitcoin is money or something, but um, the Bitcoin rabbi wrote it and it's like my favorite kid's book. And in fact, I think it's even good for adults who don't understand anything about economics, to be honest. It's great. I gave it to my, yeah, I gave it to my parents. And my dad read it and he was like, oh, I like get Bitcoin now. <laughs> um, and it's just sort of the idea that, you know, somebody, if you have a trusted third party that you can't, you're not always going to be able to trust them. Um, and it's something that we talk to our, like our kids about all the time of like, Hey, you know, if you're crying wolf about things, if you're screaming in the yard that you need help and I come over there and like, you know, you're upset that there's a blade of grass touching you, right? Like it's going to be a little bit hard to trust you in the future. If you keep doing something like that, when something's actually wrong. Um, and same thing with, you know, people who man manipulate money, right? If they manipulate the money once or twice, it's going to be a lot harder to trust them in the future and to see like, the long-term stability of a monetary system. And I think that that's definitely where we are right now, right? We've actually withstand, withstood so much manipulation with our money at this point, I think, like that it's super hard to trust anything that the government says at this point about what they're going to do with our money. So of course people are going to want to opt out, especially when there is another system to opt out, opt out to. Yeah, for sure. And for your kids, make sure you check out, for, for your four-year-old, Bitcoin for kiddos would be a good one. If okay. you've not come across that one. And for your one-year-old, Goodnight Bitcoin by the Shamari guys by Scott and Mallory. Oh, great. Goodnight Bitcoin. Okay. Yeah. I like it. It's great. You know, like the Goodnight Bear, Goodnight Moon and all of that. Mm -hmm. That They ripped that off and just did Goodnight Bitcoin. It's, it's You know, sometimes brilliant. the rip-off books are the best ones. Of course. <laughs> it's free market. You can do what you yeah. like. <laughs> totally. <laughs> all right. I got to ask you the last question, Morgan. Mm -hmm. 
If you had one orange pill left to give to somebody, who would you give it to and why? Mm. That's a good question. Jerome Powell. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Because maybe, just maybe, they'll stop running their spreadsheets and they'll run a Bitcoin node. Imagine that. Yeah. I wonder, how long do they hold on to the minutes of those meetings before they're ever released? It's five years or something like that. Mm Mm-hmm. I think something like that. It's going to be interesting to see one day someone's going to find that 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 first time Bitcoin was mentioned in one of the in one of the meetings. And I wonder when that and what is being spoken about and what's being said. Yeah. Parker will be the guy. Parker. (laughs) I I love Parker's (laughs) story about like he. It was at the hedge fund he was working for Kyle Bassey's hedge fund. He was tasked with like going through stacks and stacks and stacks of fed meeting minute papers like imagine how boring that would have been but like yeah but parker's brain firing on all cylinders and just getting more and more orange pilled with every realization (laughs) Uh, so yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of treasure buried in those meetings i am sure uh all right morgan how can people find you and where can we send them to find out about your personal finance uh company and what should yeah. they um, what what should they expect and and what's the process sure so um you can find me on twitter i'm at morgan with an e rochard my parents spelled my name wrong so if you do morgan hmm. with an a rochard you will find a french lady who um is not me um <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah morgan with an e rochard um my um my financial planning firm is originwa.com um you can book an appointment there. Uh, Mark, who works for me, is a financial planner at my firm as well. He handles all of the inbound requests for calls. Um, so he would do an initial call um, and I would do a follow-up call from there. Um, so if you did want to talk to me personally, that's one route that you can go. Um, if you need financial planning, especially, it's a great place to go. If you just wanted to check in with me um, and you need some Bitcoin consulting, you can go to moneyowners.com. You can book there directly with me. Um, it's 200 per half hour. So just throwing that out there in case somebody did want to meet with me there. Um, Pierre and I have a podcast, Bitcoin for Advisors. Um, You should check it out. It was originally intended for financial advisors to get high quality content about Bitcoin. But what we found is that it's really for everybody who wants to get high quality educational content about Bitcoin. So please check that out as well. Um, I am actually, I'm currently working on a Bitcoin personal finance book. So I am taking interviews with people to get what I hope will be good content for the book. Um, So if you think that you are somebody who is a professional currently working um, in the fiat world who would like to be interviewed about what's important about Bitcoin and Bitcoin personal finance, then please find me on Twitter um, and DM me to um, reach out for an, uh, an interview. And I think that's all my places you can find me. Excellent. Well, I'll, um, <laughs> I'll make sure I reach out to you before I post this up onto the feeds and we can get all of those links in the show notes. And uh, if you've Oh, I not... forgot one other thing. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I also wrote, wrote the personal finance book that we've been talking about, of, which is of course. The... Personal Which is finance. the personal finance quick start guide. You can find that on Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, have you guys ripped with um, Andy, Andy Edstrom? Yeah, Andy? yeah. So Andy Edstrom is in my Bitcoin for Advisors study group. Excellent. 
Yeah. And so we meet quarterly. There's a handful of us actually that do Bitcoin personal finance. Um, so Andy Edstrom has, um, he's got his company and he's also um, heading up advisor services over at Swan. Um, there's Andy Flattery who runs his own practice based out of um, Missouri. Um, and there is, um, there's Isaiah Douglas. He works with veterinarians actually who are in Bitcoin. Um, so very, very niche, but I imagine if you weren't a veterinarian and you liked Isaiah, he'd probably <laughs> still mm -hmm. take you on. There's Jim Kreider, who's actually local here in Austin. Um, he's about an hour outside Austin and also has his own practice. Um, David Oransky is another financial planner um, who I think is in St. Louis. Um, I don't know anybody abroad who's mm -hmm. doing this, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. And you got Jeff as well. Jeff Andrew at Swan, I think, is handling all the 401k kind of stuff. Um, yeah, Jeff Andrew is now actually at Unchained Capital. Um, he? and he's okay. running their IRA services there. Yeah. So basically right. he took his key keeper IRA and he moved that product over to Unchained and they actually Unchained, found a better, yeah, right, okay. they yeah. found a better solution there too. Um, it's the IRA that we actually like the most because you can hold your own keys. Um, and it's totally kosher. It doesn't uh, have any McNulty law issues, um, whatsoever because it has a custodian at Solera Bank. So, um, I would highly recommend that to people who are looking to hold Bitcoin in their IRA. I think that that's the best way to do it for sure. I think this is an area in which Euroland has to catch up to what's going on in the US. So if anyone oh, yeah. out there is listening, if you've got these skills that Morgan has shared with us today, go start a company because we need your services. We need the, the advice. And it's so different here between countries as well. There's a lot of people that can be served here and helped. Uh, so for sure. And if you do that, please let me know so that I can tell people about you because I'm always being asked, Hey, do you know somebody like you who's in the UK? Hey, do you know somebody like you who's in France? I'm like, I wish, please, if you mm. are out there, find me, I would love to promote what you're doing. <laughs> there you go, plebs. There's a way to, to escape your fiat life and start your new dream life. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, Morgan. Well, thank you for your time. Thanks so much for everything you're doing in the bitcoin space it's um you know very much very much needed and i'm sure you're just going to get from uh strength to strength with uh, with these services so yeah thanks appreciate everything you're doing and thanks for coming on the show thanks for having me on it was really fun take care you too well there you go guys morgan Rochard, please reach out if you are thinking about quitting your like we said there, right at the end, if you've got something to offer and you want a little bit of hand-holding, anybody that's done this before you is going to offer you help. They're not going to see you as competition, especially if you are going to try and emulate something in Europe where these people can't reach for whatever reason. They've set something up in the US. It's not congruent with US regulations. We, we need everybody doing this, right? This takes a huge effort. So if you are sitting there wondering about how can I add to the space, you can add to the space. Just do it. You will be welcomed with open arms. Uh, reach out to Morgan if you've got any questions or if you'd like to use her service or you know run questions by her. Uh, you can find her on Twitter. You can DM her and all the other places that she was talking about right at the end of the, uh, the podcast there. Thank you again, Morgan, for everything you're doing and for coming on the show and uh, all the best with everything for the rest of 2022 and looking out to 2023. Now guys, please check out the show sponsors or get to some of these conferences. There's a lot happening now. We need more and more people meeting each other. 
These conferences are a great way to do it. This is how Morgan and I were introduced to each other. And there are three conferences that you know I'm about to shill. The one in Amsterdam. You've probably already missed it at this point. So try and get to next year's one. The one in the Czech Republic, Prague, is coming up. Freedom City Foundation, 21st to 23rd of October. Hit the link in the show notes and get a discount. We're going to be talking about parallel structures. Then get across to the west coast of the US, hang out with the whole Swan team and their stunning lineup of guests. That is going to be in November, Pacific Bitcoin. Again, all details on the link with your discount code as well. Get yourself a book or two. Educate others, buy books for other people in their mother tongue. Hit up Consensus Network. You'll get a discount if you use Bitten and pay via Lightning. And get yourself a t-shirt from the merchants themselves, Max and Mr. Crown over at Ungovernable Misfits. Make sure you're stacking with Swan, Relay and Coin Corner. Give Coin Join a chance. You know where to go with Sabi Wallet Diet. .io, but then please do your own research. Go listen to a few other pods, find out what's going on in that space. Keep them safe. The Bitbox, Bitcoin-only hardware wallet by Shift Crypto, is one, one solution out there that you should definitely have in your arsenal. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope to see you some at some of these events. Take care.